Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to Anti-Bullying 101. This podcast is designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and provide teachers, administrators, parents, and even students information about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm your host. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor, and I've designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief, as they battle the bullying epidemic. Enjoyed the podcast, everybody. I wrote the new three R's in education, respect, responsibility, and relationships, 15 years ago. At the time, it was difficult for teachers, parents, and administrators to buy into this philosophy. With the events over the past many years, I believe that this book has more meaning now than ever. I'll be sharing chapters of this book during the next 10 episodes of Anti-Bullying 101 with commentary and ask that you take a good hard look at the state of society, education, and our culture, and consider what you hear, and use the philosophy to facilitate change. Well, hi again, everybody, and my name is Jim Burns, and I want to wish you all a happy new year. We took a little time off, my team and I. We decided that we were going to take about seven to ten days off during the holiday season, and we weren't going to be in the process of doing any productions. We were right in the middle of the new three R's in education revisited, and we had completed chapter four, and I explained to you in chapter four that we were once we hit chapter five, we were going to be going over ten compromises. And I looked at the content of that chapter earlier today, and what I discovered was there are ten compromises, but I can only cover five in one episode. It's going to take two episodes to do one chapter. And I call this chapter in the book, 40 Years of Small Compromises. And we have compromised over a 40-year period. Change has a way of sneaking up on you. One morning you might wake up and wonder how you gained weight, or contracted heart disease, lost your job, or in the case of dealing with a child's behavior, You wonder why he or she can't hold a job or get along in society or maybe even cope with some of life's basic problems. 
Often parents have strained relationships with their teenage son or daughter and throw their hands in the air when the child is very young and they give up believing that there is really something, there really isn't something that they can do or they, or they begin to blame themselves as the child who is now a young adult begins to experience social and emotional problems in their own lives. And this happens with a lot of parents. They take a look at their adult children and say, where did I go wrong? Where they went wrong was they compromised. And you could use the fiddler on the roof as an example if you care to. But once you begin to compromise, once you give in to that crying child when they're two or three years old, things just seem to snowball. And they seem to get worse. Some parents may begin to feel so guilty about their child's inability to get along in life that they enable the behavior by offering excuses based upon some circumstantial or environmental defect. And, they, you know, when the kids are in school, they can actually begin to blame teachers and society for their child's disrespectful or irresponsible behavior. In other words, it wasn't me. It was it. It was society. It was the culture. It was the environment. It was my divorce. It was the fact that the kid was bullied. It was, and not that bullying it couldn't really create some issues, but when you look at the big picture, we can't blame everything for the way our adult children turned out. And we have to make sure that we don't begin to excuse some of their behavior based upon the fact that they were had a tough upbringing or there was some environmental problem or their boss didn't like them or whatever the case may be. Children didn't wake up in the morning and decide that they were going to be disrespectful or irresponsible. The poor relationships that children have with their peers and ultimately other adults didn't develop in one day, a month, or a year. It happened over a long period of time. The change was incremental and occurred over the course of 30 to 40 years because of the small compromises that parents, teachers, and society have made in the areas of respect, responsibility, and relationships. Now I'm going to give you some illustrations as to where society was 40 years ago. And you can see where the compromises have been made. Illustration one. What ever happened to Mr. Mrs. and Ms. You know, sometimes you can watch retro television and some of the shows that are on really do depict the way things were 40 years ago. Leave it to Beaver. I was watching that the other morning and I couldn't help but notice how the adults were called Mr. and Mrs. There wasn't any Ms. back then. Even 
even when Ward and June were talking about the parents of Beaver's friends or Wally's friends, they always referred to them as Mr. or Mrs. In schools today, sometimes parents will call up and call the teacher by their first name. Sometime in school, teachers will call each other by their first name in earshot of students. Now, of course, you had a guy named Eddie Haskell who was a bit of a phony. And when he addressed Beaver's parents, you know, he would always say, hello, Mrs. Cleaver, or hello, Mr. Cleaver. And then he'd run up to Wally's room and refer to Wally's dad as your old man. The question I have is, whatever happened to Mr. and Mrs.? Even when I worked as a principal, the students called me Mr. Burns. Sometimes they tried to call me Burns. And I made sure that I corrected them. And if one of them said to me, what's your first name? I would always say, Mr. I listened to my kids refer to their friends, mom or dad, as Colleen or Tony or Rich or Barbara. I mean, let's face it, respect just isn't there anymore and everyone thinks that the ground is level. This one small compromise can make people think and wonder who's in charge and are our kids our peers? Our kids, are they our peer? The less respect that kids have for the casual adults that they meet, the less respect they'll have for teachers, police officers, and as they grow older, yeah, employers. We need to turn the tide. We need to speak to the parents of our own children, our, the parents of our own children's friends, and call them Mr. or Mrs., especially in front of our kids. Let's get our kids to show respect for folks that are older than them and make them aware that the ground isn't level. Somebody is older and smarter than they are and they should be treated that way. I have a dear friend who I've known for now 40 years. Back then it was 25. This is 15 years ago. He has four boys between the, between the ages, at the time, of 26 and 39. I've known them since they were teenagers and younger. They were calling me Mr. Burns up until about four, five years ago. That's when I told them to call me Jim. Compromise number one. Let's get back to putting adults in authority and getting and having the label of Mr. or Mrs. Illustration two, kids can't say anything they want. Now, many of you who have followed this podcast know how I feel about certain things. And you may have even heard me speak about some of these compromises at other times during other podcasts. But let me assure you, let me assure you, 
that I wrote about them 15 years ago. That's the key here. A wonderful friend of mine asked me what the smallest part of the body is. And I was very young and probably very stupid at the time and responded with a finger. And he said, no, it's the tongue. And he said, you know, although the tongue's the smallest part of the body, it can do the most damage. I never forget the conversation I had with him. Our words can really do some damage. Kids don't know this yet. Kids don't know that they're burning bridges with their words. And some of the damage that they do can be lifelong. And sometimes, you know, we don't even know what we're doing. Probably because we were just never taught how to shut up when we were kids. Kids and adults can shoot their mouth off and think they're being funny or that they're standing up for themselves when in reality they may be doing more harm than good. Now remember, this book was written 15 years ago and at the time I was watching a baseball game and watched one of the players go crazy over a call third strike. This was a grown man on TV. He had to be restrained by three other players and the manager and the manager Of course, he was thrown out of the game. He was also suspended for three games right in the middle of a pennant race. I guess he really showed him, right, by shooting his mouth off. Just an absolute dope. He could have, and I don't even remember if he did, cost the team the pennant because he was suspended and they may have needed him in the lineup. And we also like to have laughs at other people's expense. My philosophy is if we're both not laughing, it's not funny. Kids have a real problem with this behavior. They say things, get a laugh. They hurt the feelings of another person. And I don't even think they're aware that people are listening. N not everyone is impressed with their wit. And they're creating a negative image of themselves in the minds of other people. We have adults like this who think they're witty, funny, and they create, you know, these environments where everyone's laughing and so on, but somebody isn't laughing. This dear friend that I spoke about earlier was full of illustrations and stories that were inspiring as well as instructional. He illustrated this societal problem with a true story that I always refer to, and many of you may have heard it, the deaf boy story. And it's worth sharing here. There were two brothers. One was deaf. They had a friend who hung around with them all the time, and this friend was the biggest jokester on two feet. Always telling jokes, making fun of someone or something. One day the three boys were headed out of the house and the jokes just started to make fun of the way the deaf boy spoke. The deaf kid couldn't hear the brother, couldn't hear. The brother gave a half-hearted laugh and they left the house. 
No harm, no foul. The deaf kid didn't hear, so no one got hurt. No one else heard, right? Yeah. No one heard except the deaf kid's father, who was reading the paper in the den. Let's fast forward the tape. At the time of this incident, these two boys were sophomores in college. Two years went by and they both graduated with degrees in business administration. They went on the job hunt. This jokester had an interview with a large insurance company. He really wanted this job. He had to go through one more phase of the hiring process and that was meeting the vice president of the company. Who do you think the vice president of the company was? The deaf kid's father. And the only perception that this man had of this young man was that he made fun of his son. It cost him the job. People hear and people watch. And you never know who you're going to who you are going to need what when you are going to need someone or something. When the desire of your heart is on the line, people will always remember what you did. You can see this in politics. People dig stuff up all the time on people that are running for mayor, governor, senator, and even president, and that's going to be going on real soon. Self-control is important. We're going to get to that. And if your tongue, a one-ounce body part, has more control over you than you have over it, it will cost you when you least expect it. Be aware of this, my friends. It is a compromise that we made where people believe they can say and do anything they want. And it's not true. You can't yell fire in Macy's. This idea of freedom of speech, freedom of speech is the ability to say what you ought, have the wisdom to say what you ought, and the brains to say what you ought. It's not the freedom to say what you want, because you could hurt someone with your words very quickly. Illustration three. Self-control is taught. Now, I went to a Catholic grammar school for nine years. And it did have its benefits. We had to wear uniforms, so there wasn't any clothes competition. We went to church all the time, so we got some formal spiritual training. You couldn't even think of using profanity because you thought the nuns read your mind and would find out what you were thinking. You learned good penmanship. We were respectful, compliant, and responsible. The crazy thing was, no one gave me or anybody else a choice in these areas. I was forced to do them. It wasn't like one of the nuns said to me, you can go to church if you like, or why don't you try and hold your pencil this way? Or, is that the way you speak to someone? If I didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done, 
Well, there might be blood stains on the floor, and I know it wasn't Jesus' stains. It was mine. And as I looked back at this experience, the one thing I realized is that this type of education taught me something that no one talks about today, and that's self-control. The majority of the problems that a person faces in their life are related to a lack of self-control. We've compromised. We take kids who are having tantrums and so on, and at times we even say to them, there's something organically wrong with them. When in realize they need to be taught self-control. Everybody either eats too much, drinks too much, spends too much. Remember, this is 15 years ago, before we had the scare of teenage obesity and diabetes. They can't control their temper. They lust after things that they can't have, like somebody else's spouse, and develop habits that they can't break that could kill them or someone else, like smoking or driving too fast. Self-control is taught. Now, why does this stuff happen? I'm going to tell you. And a lot of people disagree with me, but bottom line is, I'm going to share this. I never remember my parents or any teacher in my life saying to me, the choice is yours. You could smoke or not, or you can lose your temper or not, or you can overeat or not. Self-control is taught. If I did something that exhibited a lack of self-control, I got grabbed by someone and I may have gotten clobbered. I was taught to wait online, raise my hand, take my time, practice until I got it right, memorize, and I got drilled on skills that everyone knew were necessary for lifelong success. Look, Musicians practice endless hours to perform a single piece of music. Students study instead of watch TV. Athletes devote years of their lives to prepare for an Olympic event that may only last a few minutes. They can control themselves. They have this self-discipline. And we've compromised that. We think that self, the lack of self-control is organic and it's not, it's taught. The concept of self-control, delayed gratification, and discipline seems so counter to our cultural values. I've suffered the consequences of the lack of self-control. I've used credit cards because I wanted things right away. I'm impatient. I vacillate between exercise and, set and a sedentary lifestyle at times with little consideration for long-term consequences, and this was 15 years ago. Self-control should be graded in school and looked at as a quality necessary for success as, a, as an adult. If you were someone you know, is having trouble with self-control. I have a good friend named Sister Houlihan who still thinks self-control is important. She's four feet eight inches tall and she can still make a grown man hold his pencil the right way. Illustration four. 
medicalizing of education has produced excuses for disrespect and irresponsibility. You know, I take medication. I have high blood pressure. And I don't think there's anyone that doesn't take meds for something. High blood pressure, diabetes, prostate problems, thyroid dysfunction, ulcers, depression, just to name a few. For sure, medication is something that's needed by many just to stay alive. Children have always needed medication for childhood illnesses and some childhood diseases. It's only within the last 20 years that we've, we've seen children being medicated with psychotropic drugs, sometimes even as early as preschool. Now, about 15 years ago, remember at the time of this writing, which is 30 years ago, I was a vice principal of a school for conduct disordered kids, and I was on the phone with the doctor who was treating one of my students. I mentioned to the doctor that the student was hyperactive, and he informed me that I was using the wrong terminology, that she wasn't hyperactive, but she had ADHD, which was my introduction to the condition. During our discussion, the doctor further explained to me that this student's ADHD was the reason why she had poor income, impulse control and she needed medication to help with her self-control. In my opinion, and parenting and the lack of good old-fashioned discipline have played a huge part in the very popular current trend in society and especially in, the edu in education where some professionals, including school psychologists, social workers, guidance counselors, administrators, and teachers take the easy way out and look for a quick fix to deal with students who in days gone by would have been considered disrespectful and irresponsible, not mentally ill. We've raised our tolerance for deviance. This same attitude has found its way into education and has resulted in lower expectations for student achievement and behavior. Look, here, here, and this is a great illustration and I want you to perk up for a minute. Years ago, if one person burned the American flag, it was an illegal act. And the guilty person or group was held accountable with the appropriate societal consequences imposed. But what happens if 5,000 people burn the flag and the jails aren't big enough to hold them? You either have to build bigger prisons or make it legal to burn the flag. See, when I was a student, there, there were kids in my school who behaved in a disrespectful and irresponsible manner. These kids were few and far between and were dealt with accordingly. What happens when the number of students who are disrespectful, irresponsible, violent, bullying, and are involved in illegal acts start to rise? We have to find a condition to support the behavior. We have to invent something to support it. 
and at times ADHD becomes that excuse. And I'm not questioning and I'm jousting with no one over this condition. ADHD was determined to be a mental illness by the vote of the American Psychiatric Association at their annual meeting in 1987. And a new definition was then added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's amazing. And they came up with the symptoms, behaviors such as inattention, distractibility, trouble in following directions, a tendency to lose things, difficulty waiting their turn to speak or participate in activities are now seen as victims. Those conditions, those people who have some of those symptoms, they are now seen as victims of ADHD. In the past, we're talking maybe 40 years ago, these behaviors were seen as achievement, dis uh, achievement ability discrepancies or just unruly behavior. Now parents and educators both seem to be relieved that the problems that exist with behaviors such as disrespect and irresponsibility in the home and in school can now be looked at as a type of mental illness that requires a treatment plan rather than individual accountability and self-control. The medical industries develop drugs that have improved the quality of life for millions of people. And in reality, some of these drugs didn't exist. If some of these drugs didn't exist, some people would not be alive today. I'm a perfect example. I take high blood pressure medication to normalize blood pressure that would otherwise be too high. Taking this medication doesn't make me any less responsible for my own health. I still have to walk, watch my diet, and not smoke. But because medication is so widely used in education, people often cite the decision of some parents not to medicate their children as the reason why a kid's behavior is out of control. This is a large issue that we have in our culture today. I don't question the use of medication at all. But if you use your head and you start to think what will net the best results, it's medication with consistent discipline. You cannot eliminate the discipline from, and you can't separate discipline from the medication. I have to walk, watch what I do. I have to take responsibility for my own health in conjunction with medication. I've often called parents to discuss their child's unacceptable behavior and have been told that they didn't take their medication that day. The idea that failure to take medication can be used as an excuse for deviance removes any form of responsibility on the individual for their behavior. I know that I'm responsible for my own health with or without medication and students are responsible for their own behavior. 
and can't use medication or lack of it to get off the hook when confronted with consequences of their lack of self-control. Sometimes parents and educators can see mental illness or ADHD as it, as it is referred to in the DSM manual as an out for them. And lots of times parents actually request a diagnosis of mental illness for their children. In other words, the parents are saying it's not me as a parent, but rather biologically there's something wrong with my kid. No stigma attached to the label, and many parents and educators are convinced that their children who are diagnosed with some form of mental illness or, uh, mental illness are actually smarter, brighter, and more creative than kids who behave, pay attention, and are responsible. It can become comforting for a parent or behavior management just to think that using consequences could have been responsible or could have caused the child's problem. They are, they are convinced that the inappropriate or deviant behaviors that they have been observing and tolerating is a result of faulty, faulty wiring in a kid's head, which led them to throw tantrums, curse out his teacher or parents, bully others, and engage in violent behavior. Medicalizing education can send the wrong message, message to parents, teachers, and administration that a student's poor academic performance or their lack of self-control can be clinically diagnosed and eliminated using psychotropic medication. The model should be focusing on respect and responsibility and emotional maturity. That's the response to the medical model that it excuses behavior and avoids relevant consequences. What we want is permanent help, not temporary relief. Here's my disclaimer. By today's standards, you have a lot of people that are de depressed, a lot of people that are anxious, a lot of people that need medication. Kids who have impulse control, they have uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, I understand all of that. And I think that medication should be used to help them. No doubt about it. But they have to take some responsibility for their own mental health and for their behavior and they have to be held accountable. Accountability is key in dealing with this condition. We can't just medicalize education. And if we continue to compromise, and I don't think, I'm not saying people shouldn't take meds. They need to take it. No question about it. But you know, they also have to be held accountable for their behavior. Just like medication with therapy, that's the best results. In schools, medication with discipline, that's the best results. And that's what we need to have. Last one for tonight. Obedience has become a dirty word. 
I started to talk about obedience about 15 years ago, which is now 30. It was one of the three things that I believe needed to be developed in all children. The other two very important characteristics that I thought needed to be developed in children were respect and responsibility. Consequently, this book. When I used to speak to parents, I would see a light bulb go off in their head as they discovered this missing piece for disciplining their kids. And when I talked to teachers about what some of their biggest problems were, they always said it was discipline. If they were not able to maintain discipline in their classrooms, then they couldn't teach. And I explained that they needed to demand obedience from their students. Some of the teachers in the audience looked at me like I had two heads. One teacher said to me, you train dogs to be obedient, not children. Things got so tough to me when I spoke to teachers that I had to change my choice of words and begin to use the word compliant rather than obedience. For some reason, no one seemed to mind the word compliance, even though it's synonymous with obedience. And everyone in the audience nodded their heads in agreement when I referred to the three things that needed to be developed in all kids, respect, responsibility, and compliance. I can't understand why obedience has become such a dirty word. And it has. Obey. You have to obey. Do what you're told. When I was growing up, parents and teachers demanded obedience. We were told to do something, and we better do it. Or it was curtains. Today, obedience from children is something we rarely demand, and it's definitely the last thing we get. Yet parents and teachers complain constantly that their children are disrespectful, but they, but they say their children just don't listen. To me, it's interesting that teachers and parents really describe the behaviors using the word disobedient. In fact, I think it's ridiculous that we're reduced to having to use euphemisms instead of the real thing. Most parents today, and I mean now, really tell their, parent, their children what to do. They usually ask them. They might ask a five-year-old, what do you want to wear to school or what do you want for dinner? Occasionally, parents tell their children what to do. And when the kids don't want to do it, they ask their kids, well, what do you want to do? Does it really matter what a four-year-old kid wants to do? Society sees adults telling children what to do as some form of disrespect. The way it should work is that children earn the right to make some choices after they've been obedient. But if obedience isn't developed first in a child, the result is that those children will ultimately become disrespectful and hard to handle. Today, parents and teachers seem to want to level the ground where everyone gets treated the same way. No pecking order, no one in charge. Rights to do what? Rights to say what you want when you want to without consequence. Politically correct, politically incorrect. 
to seek obedience from kids. Societies preach raising tolerance for behaviors that 40 years ago, now 50 years ago, would have been punished. The result, we have lower expectations in behavior for children and a greater tolerance for undesirable behavior. And that's translated into poor performance in terms of behavior and academic achievement. That's only five compromises, by the way. Five. We've spent 40 minutes going over five compromises. If I wasn't clear in how I explained it, do me a favor, drop me a line. My email is attached to this site. You can go right through the website, bullyproofclassroom.com. By the way, once you're there, take a look at some of the great stuff we have. That's on sale for, for teachers, parents, anybody. Take a look at the store. Take a course if you like. It'll help you. Also, when you get to the episode description, please donate. It takes me a long time to produce these podcasts. Today's January 2nd. We're going to do a lot of podcasts this year on a lot of topics. A lot of it will deal with bullying. And I think that we have to really begin to listen and learn something new. Because we've tried everything else. And you got to ask yourself, do you want permanent help or temporary relief? My name is Jim Burns. Right now it's a Thursday evening. I'm looking out, my, out into my backyard. It's dark out. I can't see anything. I do know that it was a good day. And I do know that the weather was nice here in New Jersey. And I ask everyone, as you go through your life, as you go through events and circumstances and difficulties and trials and so on, just remember this. Each and every day when you wake up, realize that number one, it's a gift. And number two, always try to carry your own weather around with you. My name is Jim Burns. Thank you for listening to Anti-Bullying 101.